Listener Production. We start today by acknowledging the lands and waters of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their ancestors past and elders present. I acknowledge that the First Nations across the continent have never ceded sovereignty and that the First Nations are the first lawmakers. Welcome, this is Black Matters, a podcast that is about First Nations matters and why they matter. I'm Teela Reid, First Nations advocate, lawyer and proud Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman. If this is your first time joining us on Black Matters and you're wondering who I am or why we spell it B-L-A-K, go back and check out our previous episodes. No MC today as he spends time with his beautiful newborn, but we do have a pretty incredible guest. Joining us today, we have the award-winning Australian filmmaker, advocate for First Nations peoples, co-chair of the Yes 23 campaign, and proud Aranda and Kalkadoon woman, Rachel Perkins. Yama, Rachel. Hey, Wurda. <laughs> so let's just set in some context here about the background to your work. In 1992, you started Blackfella Films and you've been behind some of the most iconic Australian films and documentaries. Just some examples are The First Australians, Brand New Day, which I love, Jasper Jones, Mystery Road, to name a few. Have you envisioned this body of work being a catalyst for truth-telling over your lifetime? Yeah, well, when we were trained as little filmmakers in 1988 at the Central Australian Aboriginal Media Association. Our boss was this terrifying, fabulous Aboriginal woman called Frida Glynn, and she set it up, and she was lovely to us but very firm, and she said, your job is to go out there and tell the stories of your people. (laughs) And so we've been doing that, and it's been a great privilege to do so because I grew up both in Alice and Canberra, And some of my friends in Canberra, they just had no idea about the history of the country, you know, no idea about Indigenous experience. And I I could see that, you know, people just had no understanding. And so I thought, well, this filmmaking is a perfect way to let them walk in our shoes, understand this part of their history that they've been denied through the education system and just share, share the story of this country. So that's what I've been doing for 30 years, getting a bit tired now. Yeah, I know. It's like, it's, it can go back a bit now in time. But uh, like when it comes to this work though and telling these stories and the significance of being able to tell First Nations stories in our own way, do you think it has had an impact on the Australian consciousness in your time and what you've witnessed? Well, it's hard to measure, right, isn't it? Because mm. opening hearts and words is hard to measure. Uh, and, you know, to, to give a sort of a, a definitive answer, you need to measure it somehow. But what we can measure is the uptake of the films we make in schools and, and the education system more broadly. And there we see this huge appetite for the content of our stories. So The First Australians, which you mentioned, which is a seven-part series, I think we finished it in 2009, that sells thousands and thousands of copies every year still. Wow. And it's one of the biggest educational resources in the country. And I think the Australian Wars, the more recent one, will equally do that. So they are going into the schools 
into a new generation of Australians. And unlike me, I'm 53, they will have access to that part of their education, whereas I never did. Well, um, I should say behind the scenes here, we have a very special little producer who's my niece and she's in year six. And I can attest to you, actually, that um, they are absorbing this work and we're having so many amazing conversations and she comes home and speaks about, you know, for example, in the past few weeks, her and her non-Indigenous classmates have all conducted speeches on the topic of raise your voice, arguing the case for a First Nations voice to Parliament. So thank you for all of the resources that you are producing, particularly in that context. It definitely is having such a huge impact. And this year you won a Logie. Congratulations for the Australian Wars. It's a three-part series. It's now on SBS on demand, and it draws attention to the very difficult parts of our nation's history, such as massacres that happened across the continent um, at first contact when invasion happened. Do you think that Australia is ready to confront the truth of our nation's history? It's a good question, and I think we're about to decide the answer to that question with this big referendum we're facing. What we see, though, in the polling is that a huge support from 18 to 35-year-olds. And then as people get older, that support drifts. I mean, it doesn't, it's not represented at our volunteers. We have like 37,000 volunteers already, and we're still a month out before the vote. It's the biggest amount of volunteers ever in any political campaign. And mostly they're retirees, I think, from what I've seen, you know, going to going and working alongside them. But but there is generally young people are more open to this. So I think it's a generational change. And um, if this is not done now, which, of course, we're doing everything we can, it will be done because mm. young people, they're like, voice to parliament? For Indigenous people having a say over their lives and policies and laws that affect them? Yeah, absolutely. Fair and just. You know, they don't see any issue with it. So um, if not now, as Paul Kelly says, when, hopefully, it will be now in our lifetime um, because these referendums don't come around very often. And it's in moments like this, do you feel like you're standing on the shoulders of giants? Your father was, of course, Dr... Charlie Perkins, uh, he was so important in the 60s and 70s activism up against discrimination and pushing for positive change. Well, I feel his um, huge frustration. (laughs) Yeah, Um, what would he say in this moment, do you think? What would be some messages? He would be so much less restrained than we are. (laughs) (laughs) he'd be banging the tables and he'd be calling people out but you know uh, he'd be getting a lot more media attention as a result actually um, Mm. which he was a very effective media operator and last night as I was tossing and turning in bed trying to sleep and worrying about everything I was thinking oh god you know because in 1967 they had the freedom rights Mm -hmm. that went around New South Wales and um, your country right through kind of my home 
district, That's Western right. New South Wales, exposing systemic racism in those towns. And he led that extraordinary moment, the freedom rides from the University of Sydney. And that was two years before the 67 referendum. I think it, you know, again, it's something that's hard to measure, but I think it really showed people what inequality was like for Indigenous people because we do need to cut through the lies. We do need to cut through the fear mongering mm. and tell the story like it is. And that is, you know, our people are at the bottom rung of the ladder in this country. We have been like that for generations. We need a change. And this is the change we've asked for. You are the co chair of the Yes 23 campaign. And you've, among many of us, have encountered this spread of misinformation and disinformation that's swelling across social media and mainstream media at the moment. Do you feel that there is a disconnect between those spaces and the yarns that you're having on the ground with everyday Aussies? Well, I am concerned that the yarns I'm having are people who are already converted, who come with enthusiasm to the conversation. And some of those people actually, what they ask is they say, how do I deal with this misinformation? And so, as you and I know, we've been around these conversations for a while, so we've got a sort of a toolbox of responses, you know. So they're asking me, so how do I deal with the people when people say this? Or how do I deal with the people who vote no? And how do, why do they vote no? And just unpacking things. So... So I come across it in ways where people want to understand how to deal with it in their own social networks because, of course, people are advocating in their social networks, which is what we want. I do come across it when I speak to people and I find them regurgitating the lies that have been spread. So one lady said, like, you know, oh, the body and they're just going to, what's it going to do then? And I'm like, look, it's just an advisory committee. Oh, but what's behind it? I'm like... No, no, it's just an advisory committee. Mm. So people are concerned. They've been fed this information for months and it's sticking. So it's a great challenge for us to cut through those lies. It really is. So in addition to focusing attention on the question and the amendment, which we urge our listeners to do because it's very simple, is there any other strategies that we can hone in on to help people understand the facts and also give some more assurance to that middle ground soft voter? Well, I think there's two sides to the no um, voters. There's the progressive no and then there's the conservative no. So very different reasons. One thinks it's, you know, on the Indigenous side, one thinks it's too weak. The other one thinks it's too powerful. So Lydia's crew think it's too weak. Jacinta's crew think it's too powerful. So completely contradictory positions. I think what's important for listeners to understand is that the majority of Indigenous people support this and have over years. Uh, very reputable data collected by Recon- Reconciliation Australia gives evidence that it's been over 80% over consecutive years. We have most non-government organisations, Aboriginal organisations backing it. Every Aboriginal land council on the mainland plus the Torres Strait Islander Regional Authority. So widespread, grassroots, democratically elected organisations that support the voice. So I think you've got to be sure that when you're voting yes, you're standing with the majority of Indigenous people. And of course, there's always going to be differences. You just have to look at the Australian Parliament for people to disagree with each other. But in this Mm. case, there is a widespread majority. So that's important. It's an advisory committee. So that's very important that people understand that is the limit of its powers. 
but at the same time, being constitutionally enshrined does give it some power in the fact that if the Australian people vote to support it, it's really like they're standing there beside us saying, you must hear them. And that gives it its sort of uh, weight and it gives it the respect being constitutionally enshrined as part of our democracy. So that's a very important thing for people to understand who think they want more, that, well, this is something significant. This is, it is a step. It's a major step forward, uh, which we'll have to decide in, you know, in only a few weeks' time, the opportunity's right in front of us. And as Noel Pearson says, this is like Haley's comment. These things come around once in a lifetime. You know, we have to throw everything we can at it to get it across the line. I think the other thing I'd say is that, you know, there'll be people who are absolutely no voters. You might be undecided. But if you're a yes person... I would suggest don't don't keep bashing your head against the wall of the hard nose or the person who just wants to discuss it endlessly. The work is with the undecided people and it's just really giving, having a respectful conversation with them, explaining the amendment, explaining that Aboriginal people are at the bottom of the social ladder because they might not be aware of that and explaining that this is a vehicle to change that because when we listen to people, we get better results and the voice is all about listening. From my point of view, I saw my father and other Indigenous leaders try and set up a number of voices. So the first one was in 1973. It was called the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. Great hope, great aspiration. Finally, they would be heard and that got shut down. And then another one was set up. And then that got shut down. And then another one was set up, and that got shut down. Another one was set up, that got shut down. And yet another one was set up, and that got shut down. So in my lifetime, there's been five bodies set up to give advice to parliament and government on issues relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the fact is that when they don't like the advice, they shut it down. What we want is an enduring guarantee that there will be some mechanism for Indigenous people to be listened to. And why is listening important? Listening, as we know, leads to better outcomes. So if you are a teacher and you're trying to teach a student, uh, you're going to be able to teach them better if you understand their challenges. Uh, If you are a doctor and you are helping a patient, You need to speak to the patient and understand what their circumstances are so that you can probably diagnose their problems and then get them on the road to recovery through whatever means is necessary. Exactly the same thing in Indigenous affairs. People have been making laws and policies about us without us as long as anyone can remember. So what we're saying is that if you listen to us, you'll make better policies, you'll make better laws You'll spend taxpayers' money better and we'll get better outcomes. And it's what Indigenous people have asked for when we talk about constitutional recognition because, of course, the idea of constitutional recognition has been around for decades, but no one's ever... Until we got to Uluru, no one had really defined what that recognition looks like, right? Because it can be just words, symbolic, it can be all sorts of things. But at Uluru, people said, we want the recognition that is, recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander as the first peoples of Australia, which is what it says in the constitutional amendment. We want that recognition as first peoples to take the practical form of the voice. So it's sort of a twofold thing that we're asking for and asking for to be recognised as the first people 
but with a practical measure to uplift ourselves and work with government to change our lives for the better. And I think for a lot of people, it's more easy to understand it or willfully ignore it than understand the sort of elegance of that idea in that it allows parliament to remain supreme. We all have one vote for our elected representatives, but there is this opportunity for a tiny minority of the Australian population, 3.8%, who suffers the greatest of any part of our population to have a say in how to change their lives for the better. Even in your lifetime alone, there has been five different types of Aboriginal advisory bodies. The issue is not that we haven't had the voices, that there's been no consistent input from First Nations peoples directly into these laws and policies, for example, in order to practically be able to change the gap uh, and close the gap. Post-1967, the federal parliament was empowered in that referendum to have the power to make laws in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Prior to that, the states and colonies only had that power. It rested at that level. And it makes practical um, sense that now you would uh, have this circumstance where you've got the First Nations peoples going, hey, We want to improve decisions. We want to be able to have a voice in these decisions to improve the outcomes for our people in our local communities. And um, just finally, Rachel, we are only weeks out now from the ballot box, which is extraordinary. This going to be nation-defining moment where we are the generation that get to decide this question. What would be your key piece of advice for those people that are in that middle ground at the moment or people who you have currently worked with are clear, yes, what can they do to galvanise this history-defining moment? Well, I'm going to assume that your listeners are fairly (laughs) pro-Indigenous because I don't think there's going to be we have had people who've See, come who have um, certainly been unsure about the issue. We have that middle ground, the uns- yeah, sure about the issue. They've found the podcast, they've come along and they've gone, look, I'm hearing this online, but I want some credible information. So we have yeah, the gra- soft listener. Yeah, okay. And perhaps you have listeners who have Indigenous friends who don't support it. and That makes them a little undecided too, potentially. To those Mm. people, or they might be Indigenous themselves and be undecided. Two things to those people. One is, is that you need to be absolutely clear that being recognised in the Constitution does not undermine Indigenous peoples' sovereignty. That can only be done through two methods. One, specific agreement between governments and a First Nations group. It has to be very clear, an agreement, a treaty, actually, of some description to cede sovereignty. The other methodology is to declare war on the people and take over the territory. No war was ever declared here. So sovereignty has not been ceded in this country because no agreements have been signed to do that. And going into the Constitution is not a ceding of sovereignty. And if you think I'm making that up, <laughs> you can ask Tony McAvoy. He's King's Counsel and that direct advice comes from him. So for those people who 
think that that's the case, please be clear that it's not. It is not undermining sovereignty. Uh, the second thing is people, yes, want treaties. Yes, they do. And they have for a very long time. And the treaty process is underway in other states. But we know from what's happened in other states that this process for treaty making and agreement making takes a very long time. So in Victoria, they're five years into their process and they've only just elected their representatives. So this thing is not only upon us, but it is also a different mechanism. Treaty making can be done at any time between government and an Indigenous group. And it's a totally different mechanism from constitutional reform, which is can only be done through referendum, which we're about to do. So one doesn't cancel out the other, and actually they can complement each other because if there were ever to be an agreement made at a national level, the voice would be there to advise government on the establishment of that agreement, and it would be there to uh, advise government if they had dishonoured their agreement as well. So they can be complementary. So that's my advice to those undecideds who are perhaps hearing from more progressive people not to support it. For those undecided people who are, are unsure about if this will do anything, we have seen so much evidence of success when government works with alongside Indigenous people, they get better results. So we've seen that in survival rates of uh, dialysis patients, people who have kidney failure in the Northern Territory. Fantastic program called Purple House where their survival rates have gone through the roof because Indigenous people have done it in their way. We've seen the success of COVID where um, our national Aboriginal uh, community-controlled health organisations worked with government and took charge of the COVID response. And we think that they saved possibly 2,000 lives Indigenous people's lives. It could have been catastrophic, but we know our communities and we know how to work with them and we have, you know, some of the best minds who've developed strategies over a very long time. I mean, I could keep going. There's so many examples of success of where Indigenous people are listened to. So that's what, it will make a difference. And it, ultimately, it will be a unifying moment for the country, for all Australians, because no longer are we in denial about our past. And Rachel, there is certainly one thing that I agree with you on, among many. On the other side of a successful referendum certainly is a more unified nation. Now, we wrap up each episode of Black Matters with a First Nations word and what it means. Do you mind sharing with us one word? I'm trying to think of one word that goes with this moment. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> There are many, There's... there are many. There are many. Well, there's a word for uh, desire, uh, which is desire is in, in the throat. You feel it in the throat in our culture. And I am strongly desirous <laughs> mm. of this moment to succeed. It is, it is consuming me entirely. I think about it constantly. I think about the possibilities and I think about the great risk. And I am just completely uh, putting all of my hopes and even prayers <laughs> uh, into this moment that good will triumph. It's going to be extremely tough. It's not enough to just say, I'm a yes voter. You have to activate your support. And there's so many ways you could do it. And uh, we need you. 
because we didn't write this constitution. We're only 3.8% of the population. It shouldn't be our responsibility to carry it alone. So our fellow Australians, we are genuinely asking for your help in this moment to get this passed because it will not happen again, at least in my lifetime. Rachel, thank you so much for everything you do for our people and our nation. Um, You are certainly a role model of mine. I adore the way in which you do your advocacy. So thank you so much. Oh, and my admiration is mutual. So thank you very much for giving me the space.